Hello and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Today we're talking to a true innovator who is working to improve healthcare through engineering and entrepreneurship. Andrea Ippolito is founder and CEO of SimplyFed, the first independent telelactation consulting and nutrition support platform connecting new mothers with resources in the first weeks of becoming a parent. She is currently a lecturer in the engineering management program at Cornell University. Prior to this, she served as director of the Department of Veteran Affairs Innovators Network within the VA Center for Innovation. There, she led the creation of a $10.5 million program that provides the tools and resources to VA employees to develop innovations that improve the experience of our veterans. In 2012, she co-founded health IT company Smart Scheduling, which was sold to Athena Health in 2016. She has also previously served as the co-director of MIT Hacking Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very excited to hear your story because your resume is is incredible. I mean, just for our listeners, I want to name a few of the things that, that you've done. You started a health IT company called Smart Scheduling in 2012. You're a presidential uh, innovation fellow based out of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. You now teach entrepreneurship at Cornell. And then earlier in 2020, you found another company called SimpliFed, which we'll talk about later. So, you know, it seems like entrepreneurship is, is in your blood. Could you tell us a little bit more about where you got this penchant for entrepreneurship and innovation? Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm just so honored to be having this conversation with you. So I'm a biomedical engineer by background. Both of my parents are engineers. So uh, they instilled in me this philosophy of solving hard, gnarly, complex problems. And I went into biomedical engineering because I loved um, not just biomedicine, but also healthcare. And in particular, studying not just the human body, but the system surrounding the human body. And after becoming a biomedical engineer, I worked in medical devices for a bit. And then I went to MIT where I studied engineering systems and systems design. And that's when I would say that I got this hunger and thirst for entrepreneurship. You know, places like Cornell, places like MIT, entrepreneurship is is omnipresent. It's very much um, in the water there, for lack of a better way to describe it. And so while at MIT, I then layered in tackling large, complex systems and engineering systems. So between my different levers of being an engineer, that's one lever, uh, a second lever of entrepreneurship, and then tackling systems-level problems, I would say they've all been intertwined in thinking about ways that we can change the status quo in healthcare. So I see entrepreneurship as just one of, of many ways. But what I love about entrepreneurship, it's all about thinking about, you know, what does the current system look like and how can you change the game in it? And how can you use different policies or different business models or different uh, customer needs to better tackle these challenges? And so when I was at MIT, I was involved with this group called Hacking Medicine, which was all about bringing together diverse stakeholders such as engineers, entrepreneurs, clinicians, designers, scientists to tackle different uh, changes in healthcare and medicine or different opportunities in healthcare and medicine. 
And that's when I first got a taste of how you can use entrepreneurship to change the game by bringing people together, starting with the problem, not the solution. It's so important to start with the problem. And then um, listening to customers, listening to the ecosystem to co-design with them and then iterate. And then that becomes the foundation for launching new innovations and, and potentially new startups surrounding healthcare. Got it. I want to first start with talking about smart scheduling, because that was the first company that you started. So could you tell us a little bit more about how you started the company, what the problem was? Because you talk about how the problem is very important. Um, so the way smart scheduling got started was actually at one of our hacking medicine events. There were quite a few of us as co-founders, so I was one of the co-founders. How it all got started was there was this physician, his name is Gabby Belfort. He pitched the problem at the hackathon that one in five patients tend to no-show. This is an issue because if a patient no-shows, then unfortunately the provider's office doesn't get that revenue. And as much as it's gnarly to talk about revenue in healthcare, it's sadly how healthcare systems stay in business and are sustainable. And so what a lot of practices end up doing to deal with this issue of no-shows and 20% of all patients no-show is they'll, they'll double and triple book appointments. And then this is very annoying for patients because then the patients have to wait in the waiting room because often when this double booking or triple booking happens, it's done blindly. So they're just blindly guessing where to double book. And so this leads to long times in, uh, for patients in the waiting room. Also, this is very frustrating for physicians and clinicians and providers because then what if all the patients show up because it's been predicted blindly? And so what smart scheduling did is we developed a predictive algorithm to predict who was going to no-show to appointments. And then by understanding who's more likely to no-show, then you can develop interventions. Maybe that's you know, calling them more, texting them more. Maybe it's sending an Uber or Lyft um, to go pick them up if it's a very important you know, follow-up appointment that's been known to cause you know, readmissions after an important procedure. But most importantly, you're arming uh, providers and their team with information so that you can um, intervene before someone no-shows. And then if worse comes to worse, if they're truly not picking up their phone, if they're not texting and not responding, then you can double book that slot. But you've done it um, with intelligence and not blindly. And what our algorithm was shown was to be very, very successful in um, predicting who was likely to no-show. And so that's how we got started at the hackathon, Gabby pitched this problem. And then one of the other team members said, well, you could use these things called machine learning algorithms to actually predict and fix this issue. And so that's how smart scheduling was born. Got it. And so did you work with various clinics to get this implemented? Like how were you able to implement this technology in a broad way? Yeah, so I was a, a first-time entrepreneur with this company, and I say for first-time entrepreneurs, one of the best things you can do in particular, not just first-time, but especially first-time entrepreneurs, is to join an accelerator. So uh, when Smart Scheduling was founded, we actually did a few accelerators. We did an accelerator at MIT called the Founder Skill Accelerator, um, and then we did an accelerator called Healthbox, which was from partnership with Blue Cross Blue Shield. 
So when we were in Health Box, because we had connections to Blue Cross Blue Shield, we got introduced to this group called Steward Healthcare System, which was a large healthcare system in the Massachusetts area. And originally, we had been focused on the large academic medical centers that were in the Boston area, and we were very focused on physicians. Turns out when we did customer discovery to talk to physicians about the pain point they were facing about no-shows, and then eventually went back to them and said, hey, we have a solution for you to predict no-shows. A lot of physicians actually, in theory, liked the idea, but they also liked their no-shows to a certain extent because it was the time they could have lunch or a snack or you know, catch up on documentation. So we learned through that process that we had to not just talk with physicians, but we had to talk to the practice managers and practice directors. So through HealthBox, we got connected to Steward Healthcare System. Also, we got connected to Steward. We, we had to triangulate. When you're an entrepreneur, you got to get a lot of different introductions because then people finally pick up your call or answer your email. We also got an introduction from Athena Health, which is a health IT company that we had first started interacting with actually at the hackathon. They eventually acquired us and Athena Health and uh, HealthBox both got us introductions to Steward. And that's how we started testing and started taking off with smart scheduling and got access to providers and started doing pilots. Originally, it was a, a free pilot. We started testing out the algorithm. Then we had enough you know, data and ammunition, then it became a paid pilot. And then we scaled to 10 of their clinics. And in particularly in healthcare, that's so important. It's so hard to get access to data and get access to outcomes and be able to prove your worth and prove your value prop, the need you're solving. So anytime you can get in with someone and do a pilot, ideally paid, but sometimes it needs to be unpaid so that you can get access to data. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. It goes to show how important it is to, like you said, to be tapped into this community. And I guess and accelerators really enable you to get a foot in the door and get those introductions and then kind of go from there. So I guess through that process, did you have strong mentors that kind of helped you guide you and your co-founders through this process since you were a first-time entrepreneur? I don't know if your other co-founders were first-time entrepreneurs as well. Yeah, thanks for asking about mentors because it's oh so important. Mentors and advisors are oh so important for the obvious reasons that, you know, especially if you're a first-time entrepreneur, you've never done it before and helping to guide you through that process. They're helpful for making connections, making connections to perhaps investors, connections to uh, customers. And so we had an extraordinary number of wonderful mentors and advisors who the list is too long to say here, but going to the point that you just made is that the way you get access to mentors and advisors is by being part of the ecosystem and giving back to the ecosystem. So many of us on the team were involved in different uh, facets of the entrepreneurship ecosystem and healthcare in particular. And I was very involved as one of the co-directors of MIT Hacking Medicine and as involved with other things as a, as a grad student. And and so when you give back to the ecosystem, you get a lot back in return. And so a lot of the connections to our mentors and advisors. Now, I also want to say this is something that I feel very privileged to be able to have access to a network of mentors, advisors who then introduced us to investors. The same thing happens with my current company. 
And this is one of the issues, I believe, in entrepreneurship and getting more underrepresented entrepreneurships there. Because if you're not embedded in an ecosystem, then it's extremely hard to break in. So I think we as a community need to think about more ways to increase access to networks for underrepresented entrepreneurs to enable them. It's funny when you're going through fundraising, you'll get the advice of, oh, just call your rich family and friends. And you know, both my parents were engineers and definitely did quite well, but we didn't have this access to you know all these rich people. And so it, it goes hand in hand with mentors and advisors is that when you're a first-time entrepreneur, and especially when you're an underrepresented entrepreneur, um, it's really hard to break into these ecosystems. And I think more can be done there to help support that. That is so true. We spoke to another female entrepreneur and um, she founded this diagnostics company and she was told by one of the investors, oh, where's your friends and family around? And she, you know, comes from very humble beginnings when she's like, you know, not everyone is going to have a friends and family around. Not everyone is fortunate enough to have that access to capital very early on. Sometimes it seems like, at least in the life sciences, the same people get the same <laughs> funding over and over again. And it's because they're so tapped into that life sciences venture capital network. I agree. And we're hoping that like with our community, Thea, we can increase more female representation in healthcare entrepreneurship. So how do you think your engineering background specifically influenced the way that you view healthcare and how to tackle certain issues in healthcare? And so I went to grad school to learn about those systems and learn about those dynamics, learn about you know the policy impacts on healthcare and learning about the business model impacts of healthcare. And when I was there, started learning about, you know, what are, again, the levers that you can pull to make change in healthcare. And it's a behemoth system, but there are things that you can do to change the game. And, and a lot of that, frankly, comes down to following the money in healthcare. So I always tell folks that are looking to go into healthcare or the biomedical space to, to take some time to learn how to follow the money because, you can follow the money, then you actually can make changes in healthcare because you can understand the incentives at play. And the reason I think my background as an engineer is so important, I, you know, first off, I was raised by engineers. So an engineering mindset is literally in my blood. But, but secondly, when you are an engineer, you're taught how to look at problems, how to look at the constraints on systems and how to design around those constraints or in collaboration with your user or other stakeholders. And so it's really important, I think, to have more of that mindset in healthcare of, you know, there are constraints and you can't just blow the whole system up. That just doesn't work. But there are constraints and how can you work within those constraints or find ways to, you know, slowly change things to, to make a difference. Um, but also then work with different stakeholders and co-design what new systems can look like together with them. With regards to follow the money in healthcare, I think that's a very powerful statement. And I want to unpack that a little further by asking you to kind of give an example of what you mean by following the money in healthcare in order to kind of create solutions. Yeah, so let's use the example of smart scheduling. So what we realized that the heart of the no-show problem, what you know really drove adoption of our technology was the fact that one in five patients no-showed. So that's 20% of patients. And that impacts 20% you know, of revenue of a provider's office. 
And if you impact revenue, then that you know changes the game for how the practice and how services are delivered. And if you can help them increase revenue, then that can help them, A, stay afloat, be sustainable. Healthcare systems, the profit margins are often razor thin, one to 2%. And so every dollar counts. And so we realized that because we were helping them increase revenue, that this is how our solution was going to get adopted. Now, if we had gone at them with the value prop of, well, we help you predict no-shows and and that helps, you know, make sure the patient gets seen and in the door and helps improve outcomes. Of course, everyone in healthcare wants to prove health outcomes. No doubt. My husband's a physician. He didn't go to med school and residency and fellowship all these years. Um, he, he's in it for, you know, helping patients and, and solving outcomes. However, just the way the healthcare system's designed is that in order for practices to stay afloat, it's got to make sense revenue-wise. So, it's about always serving patients, but then finding the, the, um, the underlying value prop um, with the financials uh, is always extremely helpful. Same thing with my current company, Simply Fed. It's we work to increase breastfeeding rates for new parents. And according to the Affordable Care Act, uh, a breastfeeding support, lactation support is supposed to be covered by insurance. And so we have that policy lever that helps to ensure that lactation consultants can get reimbursed for their appointment. Without that policy lever, then they couldn't get reimbursed and then it would be very hard for them to stay in business. So again, if you follow the money, then it will help you understand the different dynamics in healthcare and then figure out ways to design around them or with them or think about new ways or new approaches or new payment models. I see. I see. That definitely helps and makes a lot of sense. I think at the end of the day, some physicians might not want to admit it, but healthcare is a business. And so businesses need to make money. Businesses need to work efficiently. And so, and you have to find those inefficiencies and correct those inefficiencies. So it seems like the, your time at the VA was more about like developing and managing innovation. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's kind of using that experience. How do you create an environment that promotes people to use entrepreneurship to develop innovative solutions for healthcare problems? Yeah, thanks so much for asking this because this is not just something that plagues healthcare, but this is something that plagues all sorts of companies (laughs) across the world. And so I loved working at the Department of Veterans Affairs. I entered as a presidential innovation fellow, and then I ended up staying two additional years. And when I was there, I I was based out of the VA Center for Innovation, where my role was launching this initiative called the Innovators Network. And uh, the heart of the Innovators Network was tackling exactly what you just asked. One thing I learned at the VA very early on is that when you're trying to solve a problem, take time to understand the needs of your customers. So my very first project at the VA was a project called Voices of Veterans, where I was part of a team that went out to interview veterans uh, across the country to understand their needs. And then this work uh, was used to help transform the VA and we grounded the needs of veterans. And I always tell anyone that's about to start a job, the very best way to start any job is to go meet with whoever your customers are. 
And so that's how I started that role at the VA. But then I repeated that with our employees because the role of the Innovators Network is how can we create a culture of innovation, empower our team members, our employees at the VA, and harness their brain power to tackle different problems and opportunities to better serve veterans and their families and their caregivers. And so what we did is we repeated the exercise we did with veterans, but with VA employees. And one of the things we heard during that experience was that VA employees found it extremely difficult to raise ideas. They didn't feel comfortable raising ideas. They were nervous to raise ideas for fear of getting in trouble or stepping outside the box. Um, Also, there was no pathway to pursue innovations and implement those innovations to better serve veterans and their families. So what we did with the Innovators Network is we created this program where we stood up a new capability, a new position called an innovation specialist across 35 VA medical centers. And as part of the Innovators Network and these innovation specialists, we first taught and trained VA employees across the country. At the end of about a couple of years, we had trained 5,000 VA employees on design thinking and entrepreneurship principles and how you can use this in practice. And we also gave them a voice to raise problems. And the second thing we did is we created an innovation development pathway, what we called the Spark Seed Spread Investment Program. And it was three tiers of funding to help support different levels of innovation efforts. Spark Investment was about $5,000 to develop an initial prototype of an idea to better serve veterans and their families tied to a pain point facing uh, veterans and their families, or perhaps even a VA employee that's, um, and you're enabling them to better serve veterans and their families. And so this first tier funding was to develop a a quick prototype. Second tier funding is once you tested and and iterated it and co-designed that prototype with veterans, then the second tier funding was a seed investment. This was $50,000 to then pilot that innovation and get some outcomes and further test it. And then the third tier funding was a spread investment. Um, And this was once something's been proven, has outcomes, how do we then spread it to other VAs so that we can better tackle issues from a systems perspective that were impacting veterans and their families? And the third thing that the Innovators Network did actually in collaboration with another initiative was called uh, Diffusion of Excellence, was once something was working and was working at across a couple sites, truly how do we scale it across the entire VA system to veterans or veterans and their families and you know, adapt it to local needs, of course. And so that's the the pathway that we created at the VA um, to develop this culture of innovation. And it's something that needs to be resourced and needs to be tended to. You can't just, you know, stand up an innovation program and expect that it's going to bloom a thousand flowers and reap all this impact. But you have to be relentlessly focused on who are your customers, but also be very intentional on the programs and the structures you create to foster that innovation. That, that is so powerful. I'm so glad to hear that you're able to, to develop this program and that it's flourished and it's given a voice to, to the employees to implement their ideas. And I think the two points that you brought up in terms of folks being afraid and not having a pathway, I kind of see that in academia. And I see that with oftentimes like women applying for patents and such with the tech transfer office. It's not that like women aren't doing the research in their lab. It's just that they're not applying because they're afraid. There might be a pathway, but they're afraid. And no one is kind of stepping in to, to tell them, no, it's okay. Like you can do this. There's no, there's no risk or failure. Just go do it and see what happens. So I'm hoping that 
we can kind of bring the approach that, that you brought to the VA into other arenas within healthcare and beyond. COVID has just been a part of our lives every day for all of 2020. And I guess a silver lining to the COVID pandemic is that there has certainly been a startup boom in America. I read recently that the business statistics from the U.S. Census Bureau showed that there was a record number of new business applications in the third quarter. And I know that you have founded another company this year. So could you tell us a little bit more about how you started Simply Fed and what the mission is and and how are you able to do all of this during COVID? Yeah, thanks for asking that. And, you know, I'm going to go on a limb and before I fully answer that and say that it was really easy for me to start a company during COVID because I have access to childcare support. I think that's missing in our economy. And so I'm very lucky that I have access to childcare support. And I think, frankly, we need access to universal childcare support for all Americans. However, um, so I did start a company uh, during COVID-19. And it's, again, it was enabled by having wonderful support for my daughter. And, and, you know, the reason I founded this company because of my daughter. So when my daughter, May, was born, uh, we named her after um, the astronaut Mae Jemison, by the way. I'm a big space nerd. And so when, when my daughter May was born, she was born early. She was born underweight. And I wasn't producing enough breast milk, so she continued to lose weight. And I thankfully, though, had access to wonderful international board certified lactation consultants. And during COVID, I just saw so many of my friends and, and just kept hearing horror stories of of, of new moms that just had a baby during COVID not have access to the support they needed to help them breastfeed. And, and, you know, breastfeeding is a great option for those that can do it. Unfortunately, it doesn't work for everyone. It, I had a ton of trouble. However, it is your right to have access to lactation support according to the Affordable Care Act. And so what we did is we created a platform to increase access to lactation consultants Um, especially during COVID, so that new parents could have access to lactation consultants via telehealth from the comfort and safety of their own home. And we launched this product offering in June, and now we're starting to work with um, not just direct-to-consumer, but also employers. So we have a partnership with an amazing company called Milk Stork. Um, What Milk Stork does, and they have partnerships with 755 employers, is they send a refrigerated container to your hotel that the, the working mom is traveling to for work. And so that way, if you're breastfeeding, you just put your breast milk in that container and then they ship it back. And as a mom who didn't know about Milk Store when I was breastfeeding, it's an amazing product. I had to, I had a flight from LA to Boston and oh goodness, the TSA agents, you know, they're wonderful people. I'm not trying to talk down to them, but that you have to open up your milk and test it in the middle of the airport and security. Oh, it's the worst. And then you get on the plane and you have to keep asking the poor flight attendant for ice and the poor person sitting next to me, like the ice was probably melting all over them. And and so getting to ship your milk back. And so long story short, we're a partner with Milk Stork along with offering this great product. They now resell Simply Fed's telelactation services to their employees. 
And this is particularly important because many employees are working from home now. So if you uh, work at a company that has milk store, you can now purchase Simply Fed's telactation services. Oh, that's amazing. These partnerships are so, so important when you're building your business and trying to get the name out there. How did you get in contact with milk store? This is a great example of just putting yourself out there. You know, so much I will say of being a startup is, you know, networking. It's it's 90% of it. But this one was pure luck. I put in my name and email into the contact desk page on their website. And before I knew it, I had an email back from them saying, Hey, we'd love to chat about ways that we can collaborate. So it goes to show you, yes, having a network is oh so critical and important, but um, never um, be afraid to put yourself out there, even as a, a pretty early stage company. <laughs> That's amazing. So as an early stage company, I mean, you need the funds to build the platform and such. So how has the fundraising process been now, especially during COVID pandemic? Fundraising is never, ever easy. I live in a pretty rural place at the Kenyur, which is wonderful. And I love living here. And it's just an incredible environment and ecosystem to be a part of. The one thing about Ithaca, though, is that it is pretty rural. And so I, during COVID, while fundraising is never easy, you get told no all the time. And and you have to have this hard exterior and it's okay that people are saying no because you know if it was easy then it would just be a different story and it's meant to be a little challenging and and frankly i learned a lot in the process of pitching so i'll i'll, I'll try to i'm trying to silver lining it can you tell so um the the one thing during covid though is because i live in a rural area investors were a lot more open to virtual pitches, which if it was non-COVID times, I would have to be traveling all over the country. And, you know, especially as a parent with a, the two and a half year old, I'm also pregnant, it would have just been really hard to fundraise. And so there's no positives about COVID. However, it's been nice that investors have been very open to virtual pitches. And while there's so much in this country that's systematically stacked against underrepresented entrepreneurs, and, and frankly, as a woman, I with an Ivy League education, I don't consider myself underrepresented because I have tremendous privilege and tremendous access to networks and resources. But I'm hoping this is one of those things that does say the same, is that people are more open to meeting virtually for pitching. And also, there's now a whole bunch of virtual programs that help enable people to get access to investors that didn't exist before. So I'm hoping those two things stay the same after covid and so the fundraising process, though, is um, is very hard, and I leaned extremely hard on people that uh, were my mentors and advisors to give me honest, very direct feedback. And and it's extremely hard, but proud to say we just did our first close on our our first round, and so that's been wonderful. Yeah, it's been fun. <laughs> oh well, congrats! To, there's a silver lining. It is fun. Yeah, there you <laughs> the go. Fundraising can be fun. <laughs> Um, so you mentioned some virtual programs to, to gain access to funding. What are what are some examples of those? Yeah, so a lot of them are very sector specific. Um, so in health tech, there's a whole bunch. Plug and play is one that immediately comes to mind. Secondly, and this is more female specific, but iFundWoman does a whole bunch of different virtual programs. And they also have a, a crowdfunding platform that you can lean on as well. Woman 2.0 offers several pitch programs 
And, you know, those are the ones that just immediately come to mind. But whatever sector you're in, I just highly encourage you to look up different competitions or access to pitch nights, whatever network you're in, I encourage you to look into those. And then I also would recommend checking out, you know, truly like really specific, there's a ton of pediatric health innovation ones out there. J&J Johnson Innovation Lab does a ton of different pitch and mentorship events. So they're out there. And then a lot of accelerators have now moved their models online as well. Things like Techstars and Y Combinator, which again, I am a 36-year-old woman with, that's pregnant with a two and a half year old. Like, sorry, no way I'm moving across the country. And, and I know people would say, well, if you're committed, you would. It's like, well, you're going to continue to keep people out of it if you have that type of mentality. And so, but now they're all very open and virtual. So I, I'm hoping other accelerators do consider that or at least have dual options for those that you know can't. <laughs> close to the end and I want to thank you again for for taking the time to speak with us to share your story and all of your wonderful insights from your experience as an entrepreneur so my final question is do you have any parting words for the the budding entrepreneurs out there I would say first uh, find a way into an entrepreneurship ecosystem and and for me, that was volunteering at the registration desk first at the very first Hacking Medicine Hackathon. And then later I became one of the co-directors of it. So find a way into an entrepreneurship ecosystem. And sometimes that means cleaning up trash after the event. I did a whole bunch of that or, you know, volunteering to organize speakers. So find your way in. That's one. Because then through that ecosystem, you're going to get tremendous resources back, whether that's access to mentors and networks, access to people that can introduce you to investors. Secondly is pick a problem that you're passionate about. And I know everyone says this, but raising funding is tough or executing and implementing innovation is really hard. And and if you're not passionate about the problem, it's going to be hard to get through those difficult times. So that's the second thing that I would say is, is make sure you're picking a problem that you're passionate about. And then third is keeping up the good faith. when it goes wrong, you're going to get told no a whole bunch. And so again, if you're, if you have that passion, you'll be ready to hear no, but it's success does not happen overnight. And I think we glorify the stories of entrepreneurs and we skip steps and they started the company, they snapped their fingers and all of a sudden it was acquired. Right. And so I, I just know the process and the journey takes a while And it's not something that happens overnight, but you got to stay focused on your mission and why you're doing it. Thank you all so much for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare and our website at theahc.org for more content. As always, feel free to reach out via DM or our website's contact form with any questions or comments for us or our guests.